Hello, listeners. We are wrapping up the Shamecore Records season today, and we're talking about everyone's favorite band, Me Without You. But before we get started, I wanted to just give you all a trigger warning. I talk with Drew Hart, and we briefly talk about sexual abuse. I wanted to give you a heads up on that so that you can skip that portion of today's episode, if that's what's best for you. So last episode, we talked about all these metaphors used to teach kids about their sinfulness. And I asked whether this feeling inside is evidence of the ways we've behaved badly or been treated badly. In short, when we experience deep chronic shame, is that evidence of our sinfulness or is it evidence of the wounding we've experienced in relationships? I did some research on this particular evangelistic method, the wordless book. The gospel story in color for kids. Not only like a wordless book made of pages of felt, but also bracelets, songs, and other ways. I did a little research about where this started. Actually, it's for my book, which goes into this deeper, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Seems the first time this color method was used to explain the gospel was in the 1800s by Charles Spurgeon. He preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, a huge venue, in 1866. It was a sermon titled The Wordless Book. He told his audience to, quote, consider our own blackness in the sight of God, and to remember that the crimson blood of Jesus can wash away the crimson stain of sin, which makes us whiter than snow. But here's the most interesting thing about the origin story of this evangelistic method. It was a special event in which kids were brought from orphanages all over London to hear this special message. The children found that it resonated deeply, and this new method was born. In reading this, I thought, of course it resonated deeply. These were kids who experienced attachment trauma. From what we know about kids from hard places, they're going to have this nameless feeling of deep shame. So when someone comes along and says, it's because you sinned, you've gotten angry or had a bad attitude or said a swear word, the pieces fit. Again, we end up telling ourselves, I'm solely responsible for the way I feel. And we don't even consider that I might feel this way because of what's happened to me. Because I wasn't given the love and care in the relationships I was a part of. The story becomes, you feel bad because you've done a bad thing. This is such a hyper-individualistic understanding of what's going on internally. And it's this hyper-individualism, this idea that I'm where I'm at because of things that I've done, or even the way I understand myself is because of the things that I've done, really lacks a broader understanding of the bigger story of the world. And actually, it was this band, Me Without You, that got me thinking outside of individualism and thinking a little bit more about the bigger picture of how we all impact each other. Beside the bed, where at night you lay turning like a door on its hinges, 
Welcome to the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. My name is Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, a writer and neighbor. And together we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This is season six, and we're calling it Shame Core Records. How do you explain me without you? I'm, I'll be honest, I'm trying to not fanboy too much. I'm trying to not nerd out too much. I know that a lot of you would appreciate that, but I have tried my darndest this season to make this accessible for someone who has never heard any of these songs before in their life. But I do want to explain best I can who me without you is which is a hard question to answer about a band that has existed for over a decade. But in summary, if you if you took some heavy music but also made it sound kind of nice with some intros and outros that sound like explosions in the sky or Seagrose, and then took a guy screaming poetry over it, and that poetry was influenced by various world religions, and whenever he referenced the Bible, it wasn't Bible passages that you learned in Sunday school, interspersed with these gut punch confessions that might be a way to start to explain me without you for this episode i'm just going to stick with their second album that came out in 2004 it's called catch for us the foxes and i feel like there's a part that really shows what we feel so powerful in that song aaron confesses that he was pretending to pray but instead was looking down a woman's dress I can still remember the first time I experienced Me Without You. I asked for listener voicemails about what Me Without You meant to them. Someone told me to check them out, and so when I was 18, I bought their CD Catch For Us The Foxes at Best Buy, and I got it into the CD player, and I was like, what? What is this? It was this guy in this voice that was groany and whiny and shouty and like he was saying these bizarre lyrics. And I was like, well, that was a waste of $16. But I did decide to give it another try a few weeks later and the rest of the CD played and then like January 1979 came on. January 1979 saw a terrible track. And then Forward Letter Part 2 came on, and I was like a super fan after that. I played it in my car all the time. I wrote their lyrics on my college sketchbooks. Their music is embedded 
in my brain. I was uh, listening to your Shame Core record series and getting really nostalgic about the music I listened to. So I put on A to B Life and hadn't really listened to it in a long time. And it wasn't like immediately familiar with me until the lyrics started. And just like automatically all of it started coming out of me, mouthing along to the lyrics and just remembering all of these like 19 year old memories flooding back to me in my 95 Buick LeSabre driving around, going to college. I think the thing I love about Me Without You was that I had a perception of God that made it so that I was always drawn to that poetic, mystical, almost romantic expression of God. And their music connected me to that in a way that also satisfied my craving for music that was kind of edgy and loud and distinctly not CCM. Me Without You is not only my longtime favorite band, but they have had a profound influence on my understanding of faith and how I relate to a personal yet mysterious God. What they explore in their music is tragic, beautiful, paradoxical, and honest. My experience of faith has been a lifetime of encountering these same qualities. Their song, The King Beetle on Coconut Estate, has helped me process my complicated relationship with reason, in particular, my attempts to systematize God. As the moon rose and the hour grew late, the day help on the coconut estate raked up the dried leaves that fell dead from the trees, which they burned in a pile by the lake. The song has also functioned as a catalyst for experiencing and knowing God through the lens of the mystic. It is hard to articulate the tremendous help this has been to my faith, as my family and I weathered the internal and external storms brought on by the pandemic. Me Without You will always have my personal and heartfelt thanks. I mentioned that Me Without You got me thinking outside this individualistic framework. The beginning track on Catch Fresh the Foxes is a song called Torches Together. And the song itself is basically an anthem for community. And I spent some time living at The Simple Way, which is Shane Claiborne's community in Philadelphia. And the song is basically just chocked full of metaphors about community life. The shift in thinking outside my individualistic life and individualistic faith started with this song. Over time, I saw how the individualistic approach to the world I'd been brought up with hampered my ability to see the bigger picture. It's this sort of individualism, it's this sort of individualism that couldn't see that those kids felt bad because of what had happened to them, not because of what they'd done. 
I got a chance to talk with Drew Hart, professor in theology in the Bible and Religion Department at Messiah University, author of multiple books, and co-host of the Inverse podcast. We talked about the impact of this individualistic approach to the world that is blind to the bigger picture. In some ways, all that matters is my spiritual encounter with the divine, and it doesn't matter what other people are experiencing. Um, so, so long as I'm having a, uh, you know, a great pietistic spiritual encounter, and so long as my soul is going to heaven, right, then um, it doesn't matter what other people are experiencing in the body. These things are all temporary. So if they're being mistreated, Oops. I mean, it's unfortunate. Nobody would say it's a good thing. Um, but, you know, these things don't really matter, right? How we treat others and how we see others. That's in some ways distracting us from the real heart of things. So I think there's this super hyper individualistic kind of way of thinking about our society that only can see the one little moments and incidents. And then they try to, they, they impose their own interpretation on that thing because there's nothing else to make sense of it with. Um, when there actually is a lot more data. To, to consider, right? Um, and so for me, it's like, what's going on broader? Is this a broader pattern? Is this happening all the time? Or is this just one isolated thing that has never happened before, right? Um, because then it'll you would approach, approach it very differently. If this is happening over and over and over again as a reoccurring pattern, um, then you might want to look and see what kind of policies and practices and customs are in place. What kind of narratives, right, are we telling that help us to interpret or to not interpret what's happening? happening all around us? Um, what are the power dynamics, right, in play? I think these that's what we're talking about. When we're talking about si thinking systemically, um, we're, we're talking about how do we organize our society, right? Who has the power to organize society? Who, who are the decision makers over that um, in terms of how we relate to one another or sometimes not relate to one another because of those things? And so, yeah, there's a, a hyper-individualistic kind of way of looking at life that only can see the incident and is oblivious, I would say willfully sometimes ignorant to the history of how we got to where we are, as well as the bigger patterns, right? So, yeah, anyway, th th I think that's a good starting point at least, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking about um, Judith Herman is this feminist uh, psychologist who wrote this book called Trauma and Recovery. And she talks about how for years, women that had experienced sexual abuse were manifesting these uh, psychological symptoms of like PTSD, right? And someone with PTSD from the outside can look like what's wrong with you. Um, you know, you're, you, you're volatile, you can't calm down, you can't focus, which means you can't be productive in society, um, all these things. And basically, she's saying like, we don't, we're not telling the full narrative when you can say, well, this is what happened to this person. And then they've had to keep this, their abuse a secret. It totally makes sense that they're going to operate in the world this way, but it's only with the bigger picture that otherwise we're going to, we're going to demonize that person. We're going to shame them. And I was thinking about that when we fail to think systemically and, and integrate that in, I like that term hyper individualism. When we think hyper individualistically, what are the ways that um, that certain groups or individuals get shamed? Yeah. So, number one, we we create policies. I mean, it was it was just a few years ago. I remember I just like 
the audacity. We can be mean-hearted people sometimes. I remember a few years ago, legislators were pushing to like change what people can buy when they go grocery shopping if they're on welfare, right? And, oh, they can't have lobster and steak, right? Like that was a big thing. Like I'm thinking like what kind of mean people are making these policies, right? But it's all rooted in the narratives that are told, right? Um, these people, they're not poor because policy and practice and custom and racism and discrimination and lack of access and any of these kind of systems and structures in place, um, they're poor just simply because they're lazy. That's the easy explanation. Right. And they're because, and so they shouldn't be able to enjoy life, right, in, at any moment, right, um, because, you know, they're poor. And so these, I, mean, that, I guess that's the kind of posture, the kind of scapegoating um, and ugliness um, and lack of empathy, hard-heartedness, right? Um, I mean, just think about how the, these it, these po- these narratives that we tell um, – and this hyper individualism really steals people's tenderness and capacity to love others and see others in more meaningful ways. Right. And I think that, um, it's just scary to think about, um, that kind of victim blaming that does result. It, and it's inevitable that, that there's going to be that kind of victim blaming. And I mean, we, I, I know, I mean, I often vent about the way that poor black people in particular just get talked about just constantly. Um, and sometimes I won't like, like even black middle-class folks as they want to talk and fight racism and all this stuff also engage in it at times. Right. And so it's, it's deeply problematic um, because then we like, and it's very similar to what you were talking about in terms of the sexual, like people are experiencing extreme trauma and dealing with so much, much um, and and how people are surviving, how they engage it actually makes a lot of sense given the particular challenges that they're facing, right? Um, but when we erase all of that, when we erase the fact that we're talking about intergenerational poverty that didn't just happen accidentally, but that was imposed on people, redlining and restricted deeds and covenants and um, lack of access to quality public education and you know lack of jobs and all, we could go on and on and on about all the conditions that people have been surviving with um, and then also the verbal assault that's just a part of way of life that you know everybody feels like it's a free for all to talk about poor black people and I think that um, that is the inevitable result of that kind of hyper individualism um, we create these policies and practices and myths like meritocracy that will further advantage some people and will further disadvantage others. Um, and so, yeah, we, I, I think people love to victim blame, um, quite a bit in our society and yeah. Um, until we have the capacity to see and make sense. Uh, and some of it is, I mean, I, I don't, while certainly like, you know, taking some sociology classes can certainly help. I mean, something as simple as just like hearing people's story, right? And just being open to hear people's story um, can open people to see so much more that's going on, that there's so many other factors. And even, uh, you know, we have enough knowledge to see that someone like Paris Hilton isn't there because she worked hard, right? She inherited it. And there's systems in place and structures in place that benefit folks like her, right? Policies in place that pass down wealth and shield it from others and others are and so that's on just the most simplistic level there's enough 
data, so to speak, right, in our own lived experience to see um, that there are systems and structures and institutions and policies and narratives um, that impact people's lives and how we organize people's lives um, really matter. It's this kind of individualism that could look at a group of kids and assume that they felt dirty inside because of their individual sins and ignore the fact that they'd experienced trauma that causes shame. It reminds me of one of my favorite lines from Padre Gotuma's book, In the Shelter. He says, if we are to tell the story of sin, we must tell the story of the sin we live in, not just the sins we commit. I wanted to share a bit more of my interview with Kurt Thompson when I talked to him about this shame. When it comes to this thing that we call shame, this phenomenon, uh, it, you know, it, at some level, it's like, well, if, you know, our listeners, like, nobody needs a psychiatrist to know. Like, I don't need him to define shame. Like, I know, like, I, I, I had a moment like that this morning. Um, but, but I think that we can describe what happens to us when this takes place. So, first of all, it's important to know that it is, and before anything else, it's an embodied phenomenon. It's a neurophysiologic phenomenon. It can begin, uh, we can begin to experience it as early as 15 to 18 months of age, which means it's pre-verbal, which means that, you know, infants and toddlers are sensing and picking up on a tone of voice, on a glance, on all the kinds of things that mediate this experience, right? So it's not just that I'm ashamed because of a thing that I did, which may be true, nor is it a thing that I'm ashamed of because of this thing that is true about me, this kind of more abstract way. No, it is first and foremost something that I literally feel in my chest, in my face, in my hands, in my body. And one of the features is that it tends to be what we call disintegrating. Now, that's a, that's a term that we use in interpersonal neurobiology more formally because it stands opposed to the word that we use that we would describe human flourishing. And that is the word integrated. We, we are, when we are, therefore be ye whole, even as your father in heaven is also whole. I asked him about the impact of shame on our relationships. People, we see what happens to a dog. If a dog is ashamed, right? The dog's brain lowers his head, tail between his legs, eyes loud, and he just like approach, like approaches. He doesn't want, like, he doesn't want to come to you because like to look at you is too, it's too bad. Like it feels too bad. As human beings, in our shame, we don't go to God. God has to come and find us. In the practice of community, in the practice of the body of Christ, we would say, for us then to do this with each other, which of course is extraordinarily difficult, but not because it's complicated, it, but it's, it's terrifying. But when we do this, we create the opportunity for my shame to be transformed because that whole story what I've told myself about not being a good enough son because I haven't worked hard enough to try to get the other 8%. When Crisp and I look across the room and I tell you this story and somehow something's not computing because like you're not looking at me like my dad used to. Your tone of voice is not one of condemnation. But like there's this sense that like it's all can be almost be a little disorienting where like I see Crispin coming for me and it just doesn't make sense because like here's all my stuff that we've just rolled out onto the floor and like why is he getting closer to me? Right? This like and literally it'll be preverbal. I don't get this. And there you are not leaving the room. And as you do that, there are parts of my brain that turn on that have been waiting for this moment since I was six or eight or ten. And in that moment, 
my mind is renewed and my brain is changed because somebody in the body of Jesus is coming for me, being for me what Jesus is being for all of us. And you need to know that evil will want to do its best to remind you of the same narrative that you walked in here with. I, I, I say, you know, look, uh, Crispin, if, if you were standing on your sidewalk and you looked up and suddenly saw you were being approached by a small red radio flyer wagon at about three miles per hour, you would just put your foot out and you would stop it. Just a, it's just a wagon, three miles an hour. If you're standing on a railroad track and you see that you're being approached by the engine of a locomotive at three miles an hour, you're not going to stop it. But it's not because of its speed. It's because of its mass. And shame is not just something that each of us as individuals carry. We carry the mass effect of it of generations within our own families of origin. We carry the generations of our cultural phenomenon. Our, our, our racism would be one major example of that. And it's important for us to know that like the shame payload that I literally carry around epigenetically and otherwise in my own brain, like it's not a little red wagon. It's a locomotive. And how do you stop that locomotive? Well, I don't do that. What do I need? I need another locomotive. I need something bigger than me. I need the cloud of witnesses that we read about in Hebrews chapter 12. I need the body of Christ that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I need others who with with whom I am continually being reminded not just of the facts of the story but to your work in doing EFT. Like I need the embodied, felt, sensed, imaged presence of real boned and blood people in the room who will repeatedly help me practice learning what it means to tell the truth of my story such that I'm paying ultimately more attention to their voices. But that takes practice, 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 practice to build the neural payload in my mind that's going to countermand the locomotive that's coming at me. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're bringing to mind. <laughs> so I'm in the third grade and we were, and we had this assignment where uh, we, we, we were starting to read longer stories. And I don't even remember the name of the, of, I, I, I remember the name of this story. I just remember that it involved a story of a young girl and a friendship that she develops with a raccoon. That at the end of the story, the raccoon has to leave and go be with his family. And so the night before, my mother, who's a, who was, who's an elementary school teacher, like we're going over this and I'm reading because we have to read out loud, right? Because we have to read this. And so I'm reading the story the night before and the, 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 we're going to do this in class. And I get to the end of the story and like, and I can't contain myself. Like it was just so heartbreaking for me and I'm starting to cry. Right. Okay, fine. The next day, the teacher has us going around the room, reading different parts of the story. And I'm watching, I'm watching and I'm like, and I'm like, holy cow, I'm going to end up reading the end of this story. Like I, like I didn't, you know, I'm evangelical Quaker boy that I was, I, I didn't like, I'm so screwed. I didn't like, I wasn't using those words, but like I was, and, and you have to stand up to read. So I stood up and like, and I'm like, please just help me keep it together. Keep it together. Like, and by the time I'm done, like I'm bawling because I 
could only see this story, feel this story in one way. And I was bracing for the embarrassment of kids and my teacher. And I remember like sitting down with resignation, just kind of like waiting for like all the weirdness to come. And I, to this day, still remember my third grade teacher looking at me across the room with this look of like kindness and mercy. And there was a girl who was sitting in front of me, turned around and just like looked at me with the same kindness. And in that moment, even as a third grader, the story that I had been telling was that like you, you, you know, if you, if, if you let yourself be seen like this, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not using these words as a third grader. I'm just feeling this. If you let yourself be seen like you're screwed. And the presence of those people enabled a different story to show up so that when we went to recess, I never thought a thing about it again. In order to no longer feel shame, we need to tell a new story about ourselves. But that doesn't really capture it. It's that we need to experience a new story of ourselves. Like Kurt talked about, whether it's in the church or in a classroom with a kind, compassionate teacher and classmate. As a therapist, I encounter so many people who are trying to believe better things about themselves. They want to believe that they are lovable, valuable, that they're okay and accepted. But it's so hard for our brains to take those abstract concepts and actually heal the parts of our brain that hold those deep feelings. That healing generally happens not through reciting affirmations, but through experiencing new, healthier relationships. And shame is like a locomotive. It's an overwhelming force of all the stories we've been told by society, by peers, and sometimes by those who raised us. And in order to believe a more life-giving story about ourselves, we need something stronger than a set of affirmations. I believe that the good news of Jesus is that the shame-filled stories we've been told are not true. You are lovable. And understanding that in a new relationship changes you. You go from feeling dirty and broken to loved and accepted. And that's not the only shame-filled story that Jesus is telling us is untrue. Think about the stories of marginalized people and the stories Jesus told about them. Not just with his words, but in relationship. What did it mean for God to come and sit and eat with tax collectors and sex workers? We've been told all along that sinners make God want to puke. But Jesus tells us a new story about who we are. We are beloved children of God no matter where we come from. And this new story, that actually is a continuation of Jewish law, not a contrast to it, is that everyone is a beloved child of God. And so we are called out of these evil systems in our world that dehumanize and exploit others. When we know our own belovedness, we also have to pay attention to the belovedness of others. And this belovedness is not just a theological statement. It's a transformation of experiencing yourself as a beloved child of God. And that comes through relationship. It reminds me of the end of one of my favorite songs by Me Without You. I wrote a four-word letter! The postscript and crooked lines Though I'd lived, I'd never been alive Aaron says, We hunger, though all that we eat brings us little relief. 
We don't know quite what else to do. We have all our beliefs, but we don't want our beliefs. God of peace, we want you. salvation is not so much about a set of doctrinal statements, but a genuinely loving relationship with a God who longs to bring healing both to you and to a very broken world. Now, that relationship itself ends up with many flaws, often because of the ways we've been taught to relate to God, which has been my hope this season, to point out these dysfunctional ways we've taught to approach God and to tell some better news about life and relationship with God. For me, this season is a starting point. I had a chance to dig more into these unhealthy attachment styles in my book that releases next February, which of course I'll keep you updated on. But my hope has been that listening through this series gives some words and framework to feelings that you may have had in the background of your experience for several years. I feel like bringing out those implicit or conflicting messages is always the start of healing. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, where DL is often talking about weird bits of Christian media. Find us on the web as well. Also, we love getting emails from listeners. You can find the links to our website, handles, and email in the description of the podcast episode. Support the show on Patreon and get monthly extra episodes on evangelical culture for as little as $1.50 a month. DL's book, Myth of the American Dream, is available anywhere you get your books. And lastly, artwork for this season was designed by Zach Bard and theme music by Forrest Johnson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>